like to talk to you about the little Therese of the child Jesus. As you know, she is one of the patron saints of the Institute of Christ the King, along with St. Francis de Sales, St. Benedict, and St. Thomas Aquinas. She is the patron saint of missionaries and missions around the world. And as you know, the Institute also has a missionary aspect. Before starting this talk, I'd like to invite you all, uh, members of Sursum Corda or young adults, if you're between 18 and 35 years old, you're invited to our annual retreat, three days retreat. This year we will be at the Shrine of St. Therese of the Little Flower here in Chicago. The retreat will take place uh, beginning of August. You can check our Institute website. You will see that it's on the main uh, page of our Institute website. And you can already register. Um, we should be uh, able to maintain this retreat this year from what I heard and what I, I know. I know that the churches are reopening up uh, this weekend in Chicago, which is a good sign for our retreats in August, of course. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's start right away uh, our talk uh, and our contemplation, really, uh, of the life of the little Thérèse. And I'd like to start first with this long quote, beautiful quote from Pope Benedict XVI. Dear brothers and sisters, he says, on his sermon uh, for the Feast of Saint Thérèse, I'd like to talk to you about Saint Thérèse of Lisieux, Thérèse of the Child Jesus of the Holy Face, who lived in this world for only 24 years at the end of the 19th century, leading a very simple and hidden life, but who, after her death and the publication of her writings, became one of the best-known and best-loved saints, little, little Therese. She has never stopped helping the simplest souls, the little, the poor, and the suffering, who prayed to her. However, she has also illumined the whole church with her profound spiritual doctrine to the point that Pope John Paul II chose in 1997 to give her the title Doctor of the Church, in addition to that of Patronage of Missions, which Pius XI has had already attributed to her in 1939. I'd like to invite you to rediscover this small, great treasure, this luminous comment on the gospel lived to the full. The story of a soul, in fact, is a marvelous story of love, told with such authenticity, simplicity, and freshness that the reader cannot but be fascinated by it. But what was this love that filled Therese's whole life, from childhood to death? Dear friends, this love has a face, it has a name, it is Jesus. The saint speaks conti conti continuously of Jesus. Let us therefore review the important stages of her life to enter into the hearts of her teaching. End of quote. Again, this was Benedict XVI. So, our little Thérèse. She was from a modest family of Alençon. It's about 60 miles from Lisieux, uh, western part of France. Uh, it's a tiny town it's not you know not much going on there although it is quite famous and it was already very famous at the time for their beautiful lace uh, ladies at that time would um, spend hours you know making these beautiful laces so Alençon is quite famous for that she was of a modest family of five 
um, we know that uh, she was in the convent from 15 years old to 24, 24 years old. There, her biographers uh, mentioned that she had a beautiful smile. She was well known among you know her family and cousins and in the village of Alençon. She was quite well known as a child uh, for her beautiful smile, extraordinary smile on her face. She had brown hair and very green eyes, very determined temperament and almost choleric as we will see, or not almost, but certainly choleric as we will see. She quickly understood that holiness was meant for all, contrary to what was believed by many at that time due to the Jansenist heresy, where, you know, only a few would uh, go to, to heaven. That's why the Jansenist crucifix, for instance, is always uh, has the shape of um, Christ with his arm, very close to each other on top of his head to show that salvation was only reserved for a few. But St. Therese very quickly uh, kind of uh, reversed that entirely. Of course, this is not just St. Therese, this is being Catholic, but still at that time, France was really affected by the Jansenist uh, heresy. So holiness for all, everyone has been called to go to heaven. Now everyone has to take the means for that. So when she was 14 years old, she made a pilgrimage to Rome with Celine, her sister, and her dad. And there, incredible uh, moment of her life, she was able to see the Pope in person and ask the Pope permission to enter the convent. That was on November 20th, 1887. You know the protocol at that time, you couldn't just go and talk to the Pope and ask whatever you wanted. No, it was very clear protocol. You know, you would have to make three genuflections kiss the mule of the Pope, this uh, shoe, the shoe of the Pope, literally, um, to kiss the, the shoe, the ring, and then bless, receive the blessing from the Pope. So the chaplain that was leading this pilgrimage made it clear to Therese and all the other pilgrims that there was no way to talk to the Pope. You just go, you receive his blessing, and that's it. Because, of course, there is a practical aspect for that. You know, all the people, thousands of people visiting the, the, the Pope uh, all the time, so, um, out of charity, also for all the other pilgrims, you cannot just you know stay with the Pope and have like almost a private uh, interview with him uh, in these circumstances. So the chaplain was very clear, made it clear to Therese, but Therese was quite stubborn as well, and you know she um, was able to still talk to the Pope and ask him, you know, uh, Your Holiness, I want to join the convent. What should I do? And um, the answer of the Pope was quite. Uh, uh, clear, some would say, you know, it's the exact uh, answer that uh, a Norman, someone from Normandy, where Therese was actually from, uh, that's the answer that someone would, would give. Not a yes, not a no, but just do what your superiors will tell you to do. You will enter the convent if this is God's will. And of course, you can imagine the reaction of the little Therese in tears, right there at the foot of the Pope, in tears and um the the chaplain that was there with other people around had to carry her outside of the room, literally, because she was in tears and couldn't uh, believe such a, a, an answer from the Pope. It, like, it was like all her dreams, uh, all her expectations were all of a sudden gone. Uh, so first big sacrifice, uh, you know, on a spiritual level, first big sacrifice from Therese, sacrifice uh, of holy obedience. 
finally, after just a year, actually, just a year after talking with her own bishop, uh, she was uh, given permission to enter the convent at the age of 15. She entered the Carmel uh, in 18... Um, sorry, that Carmel is quite a. It's not a very big Carmel for uh, this area in France. It's one of the actually one of the smallest Carmels in France. It's extremely cold, although it's in Normandy, so it's not like you have snow, you know, in a winter. Um, but still, it's very humid and uh, rainy and and cold, uh, deep cold that really affects your whole body. Uh, you can imagine these huge walls, these long aisles, uh, you know, in the convent, cold winters, uh, rainy and so on, and this young, uh, 15 years old, offering up her life uh, in these situations. So uh, quite a small uh, Carm- Carmel, only 26 sisters were in this uh, Carmel at that time. But it was also um, the rule of St. Therese of Avila, actually, to reduce the number of uh, sisters uh, in the convent to 26. We know that at the convent they had uh, about two hours of free time a day. These hours were given for them to be able to talk to each other, just two hours. Um, some would say that uh, these uh, 26 ladies in the same convent, Carmel, you know, the same four walls, literally they were not allowed to uh, go out. Uh, they were really... They had to respect the, the uh, cloister. But some say that this is actually a proof of God's existence, and I think I can agree with that, you know, to put 26 ladies together under the same roof without having them kill each other. So if you want a good proof of the existence of God, uh, you can take that. Uh, this is truly a challenge of fraternity, the challenge of fraternity to live together in this uh, community life a life full of sacrifices, but certainly also full of joy. Uh, we know from um, the, the life of the convent, of course, that uh, they would wake up at 4.45 in the morning. That gives you an idea, once again, of how strong these ladies were, you know, to wake up at 4.45, and they didn't have, like, a nice, you know, clock uh, to wake them up, but they would actually use what we call a matraque. It's like a... Uh, kind of a baton, you would call it a baton, but with two other parts that would hit each other, um, making very um, rough noise, and the sister would go in the, the whole convent uh, and shaking that matraque to make that uh, awful sound to wake all the sister up. They have to learn everything again when entering the convent. Saint Therese, at the age of 15, she had to learn everything. You know, the way she would walk, the way she would eat, the way she would talk with the other sisters, the way she would make her bed. We know that she was not the one making her bed at home until the age of 14, until pretty much when she entered the convent. Her sister Celine, uh, or Pauline, her other sister, would uh, take care of that. So you can imagine uh, this little Therese, how many sacrifices a day that represented for her. To learn all that, because you are no more a person of the world, you consecrate yourself entirely to, to God, and the community life makes it such that you have to relearn how to live together um, because you will have to put up with that one sister maybe your entire life, you know, when eating. So trying to do all these things the most uh, proper way. And that's also, as a parenthesis, what we we do also at the seminary, for instance. You know, the the rules we have when we were at the cassock, you cannot behave 
you know, as you would behave being in the world when you wear the cassock. You have to, to change to um, correct, uh, you know, your whole uh, way of, of doing things because it's no more you, truly. It's what you represent, the church, and for these nuns, the church as well in a, in a more specific way. They had meditation for an hour every day at the, at the convent, and she says, it's interesting to, to see that, it's very encouraging for us, that she would fall asleep very often during this meditation. And it's funny that she actually, in the chapel there at the, the convent, um, one of the side altars, you can see, a, it's, a, it's a small chapel, but you can see a, an altar decorated all around it, um, painted, and she actually painted these, this court of angels surrounding the altar, this court of angels, and you can see on the top uh, left corner of um, one of the uh, the angels is actually uh, an angel asleep. So she said, well, that's I wanted to represent myself being there, you know, with the angels uh, in the presence of God still, but, you know, life is what it is. And so she would fall asleep during her prayers. Some would call it the St. Peter's meditation, you know, because he was asleep in the Garden of Olive. This is certainly not something, you know, we recommend, but... Um, Human nature is always there, and uh, if we can be like little children in the hands of God, uh, well, let's uh, be. Let it, let it be. Uh, she would say that a baby sleeping brings much more joy to his parents, or as much joy to her parents uh, as a baby that is awake. I'm no uh, certainly some of the moms watching uh, the conference tonight are certainly thinking, yeah. Uh, it's true that when the baby is asleep, it brings quite some some joy or some rest. Um, they would have mass, of course, every day, and lunch with reading. That's also what we have at the seminary. We have mass in the morning, and then uh, at lunch, for lunch and dinner, we have a reading. Uh, it can be anything. It can be a spiritual book. It can be history. It can be, uh, you know, more recent uh, writings from... Uh, different stories, sometimes kind of a a novel, uh, you know, more uplifting novels and so on. Um, And it's it's very good because you really take advantage of the meal to also nourish the the soul and the intelligence. It's it's great. And, uh, you know, with the time we spend together, it's not like uh, we are looking forward uh, always uh, for that time to be able to talk to each other, as you can imagine. Um, So this time is, is precious too during during meals. She would very often have very painful stomach uh, during her entire novitiate. Um, And some of the sisters even admitted that she would give her, on purpose, she would give her the worst part, like the worst um, leftover or uh, bites of the food because they knew that she was going to eat it without complaining, without saying anything. And that would probably uh, give her, most of the time, a lot of pain. So a life of sacrifice, but hidden sacrifices. At 11 a.m. at the convent, they would have a free time and sister would be allowed to talk. She enters the convent, we know, for two specific reasons. She said, first, to save souls, and second, to pray for priests. Beautiful, to save souls and to pray for priests. That's her sole desire. And desire through that, desire to be a great saint. That's what she would say herself, to be a great saint. And at first, her spiritual director wouldn't 
uh, or Mother Superior wouldn't understand that. Well, what are you looking for? You know, a great saint, but, and you, you know, of course, and we'll talk about it, that being a great saint doesn't mean necessarily do extraordinary thing, but certainly to do ordinary thing in an extraordinary way. She had a very simple room. If we go back to the convent, um, we can see her little room with very few things, a table, a bed, uh, a little um, kind of a, a big jar for, for their water to wash themselves quickly in the morning. Uh, they would have like, um, I don't remember how you call it, but the, the same uh, timer, you know, that you flip uh, to measure the time. And beautiful to see that under her pillow, she would keep all the little prior intentions that friends, uh, family members, uh, you know, people that knew her would give her, would send her. And she would keep all these intentions right under her pillow to remember them and to be as close as possible to these people, even at, at sleep. So beautiful little devotion here of our little Therese. If we go back now a little bit, Louis, Louis and uh, Zélie Martin got married on January 2nd, 1873. So they were quite old already for the time. They were quite old. They got married uh, later in life. Uh, if I remember correctly, the, the story when Zélie, uh, his wife, when she was in Alençon, walking on this little bridge, she saw uh, Louis. And just at the sight of him, she she said, I knew it was the right one. I knew he was he was my, my husband, going to be my husband. Um, so beautiful little um, story here of the, the intimacy that right away connected the, the two holy um, uh, Louis and Zélie. Zélie makes lace, of course, in Alençon. That's why they, they are in Alençon. We talked about this, this lace. And Louis, the husband, is a, quite a famous clocked smith uh, for the, the town of Alençon. Interesting enough, if we look at the, the life of her parents, that will also allow us to understand better the, the life of Saint Thérèse and um, this, the, the importance of this, this love in her theology, really. Um, her parents remained chaste and practiced perfect continence for one year after their wedding. This is, of course, certainly uh, extraordinary, uh, and even the, the the spiritual director was kind of surprised when he, he learned about it. Actually, I said uh, one year, but it was nine months. They were planning on doing it for one year, you know, remain perfectly chaste uh, for one year as a sacrifice and a, you know, gift of oneself to God, uh, but still living, of course, together. But the spiritual director did not really understand that, so he quickly told them, well, no, you, you have to now, you know, embrace... Uh, uh, the sacrament of marriage, truly, you have to, to fulfill the um, marital um, intimacy rites uh, in order to uh, beget uh, Christians, you know, souls for eternal life. He helped them to understand the beauty of that vocation, uh, you know, because they had so such a high expectation of, of marriage and spiritual life, they really wanted to be saints, and they thought, you know, well, we have to remain chaste, you know, and practice continence in order to, to be holy. And the spiritual director, of course, explained that, no, this is not what it's all about. Uh, marriage, uh, sanctification of marriage, go through also um, procreation and edu education of children, as you know. 
So after that, these nine months of uh, con- continence, they uh, finally she got pregnant after that and had her first baby. We know Marie, Pauline, Léonie, Céline, and Thérèse. She's the last of four children. We know that uh, she had, Zélie had four miscarriages, the little Joseph, another Joseph, Hélène, who was five years old when she, she died, um, and uh, another Thérèse. We quickly realized that uh, her mother, Zélie, uh, had a terrible um, breast can- cancer. She couldn't uh, give the milk that was necessary for the survival of La Petite Thérèse. So after many considerations, uh, Zélie decided to send her little Thérèse to a family that she knew, a very poor, very simple family, um, away from um, Alençon, a family of farmers. But she knew uh, the Taillé, la famille, the Taillé family. So she, she took Thérèse there, knowing that uh, Mrs. Taillé was going to be able to, to give the milk that was necessary for Thérèse, because she was almost dying at that time. In the first year of her existence, she couldn't drink the, the milk that her mom was giving her. They even tried like normal milk, mixed with water, which would have literally killed her. So she was extremely fragile, and uh, her mom quickly realized that, and so she had to find um, uh, a nurse to, to take care of uh, the little Thérèse. And quickly, despite this <laughs> difficult uh, start in life, as we could say, quickly, though, everyone realized how strong of a temperament Thérèse had. Very choleric. She knows what she wants. Her parents, of course, against that, some might think, you know, well, they should try to be even more strict, you know, or more uh, uh, to correct her in a, in a harsh way. But no, uh, and that's probably what they what make, made them holy, Louis and Zélie. They chose meekness, tenderness over harshness. Strong love first between each other, and then strong love, beautiful love between uh, every member of the family. Every Monday, that shows also their charity. And remember, charity first starts at home among ourselves, and then from this overflow of charity, we can help others. So every Monday at the uh, Martin's house, they would have, um, they would welcome any any anyone who would be in, in need, any poor poor soul out there that would uh, need food or you know anything so they would always have open house on monday with uh, the table available with a meal ready for whoever would would show up and uh, ask for help they would have their daily evening prayer of course ardent faith a strong faith that we see god is truly the heart of the family and the family life dramatic event we are now in december 1876, just before Christmas. They, of course, know about this uh, pain that the mother has, but this is truly just before Christmas of 1876 that they realize that uh, Zélie is dying of this cancer. It is certainly a desolation for her. 
she only have a few months left to live. But she redoubled her trust, confidence in God, her prayers, and the family becomes even more united in this suffering. In August 1877, just a few months later, she passes away. Therese truly feels abandoned. This is her first traumatic um, impact really over her on her soul that will uh, have some serious and grave consequences in the future as we will see. Once again, Therese feels abandoned. This is the first abandonment, uh, we could say, the life of Therese. She is still very young. Louis, the husband, decides to leave everything. He moves from Alençon to Lisieux. Again, we are about 60 miles away now. And by this, uh, quite a big house, not so big for the time. We see quite a uh, many, many houses like that in this area. But he buys a nice house, Les Buissonnets. And buisson is like uh, bushes. So there were probably like uh, lots of bushes around the house. Les Buissonnets. Uh, also because he wants to be close to his brother in Lisieux. Big change. Big change for the family. And big change for Therese after this first dramatic event in her life. She is a totally different person from now on. She becomes incredibly introvert which was certainly not the case before. Remember, she was extremely choleric. If she wanted something, she would make it clear to everyone. But after this first dramatic um, event, everything changes. She is extremely shy, extremely quiet. She can only feel safe when around her sisters and her dad. Therese become uh, almost, as we could say, a, a whiner. You know, anything extremely sensitive to little things that uh, would happen to her or that people would, would tell her. She feels extremely uncomfortable with society, except, once again, with the family. She cannot separate from her sisters. See, she's extremely fragile, literally traumatized. Pauline becomes her mother at that time, and at the request of Therese, and then with this relationship with Pauline, she kind of become more temperamental, more capricious, you know, uh, in a more hidden way because she would not react like that with in society with people around her. But within the family uh, life, she she kind of become uh, becomes quite uh, sensitive, you know, to to anything too at home, which again was not the the the, the, the case before. Uh, an interesting fact. She has to have the best grades, you know, at school. At that time, she was kind of what we would say today, homeschooled. Um, her sister, Pauline, would take care of her education. She was very bright, very smart, and very uh, much more advanced than other um, uh, people of uh, young girls of her age. She is, once, as I said, she's very close to her father. She would call him her beloved king. And she would say, this is beautiful to, to see that, and that's uh, certainly why we could uh, say that they, they are truly saints, her parents. Uh, she would say herself that to know how saints would pray, I would simply have to watch my dad, look at my dad when he was praying. That's beautiful. 
How many of us can, can say that of our own data or maybe of ourselves? You know, when I pray, can I expect others to, uh, to, to see a, the saints? You know, of course, not in a, in a prideful way, but very humble way. There is an interesting fact also that we have to mention now. She was only, I think, about eight years old. Uh, she had a very interesting vision uh, while at home. I think she was staying in her room on the second floor of the house, and she saw by the window uh, in this little garden. If you go in Lisieux, you can see this little tiny garden, very nice, a lot of flowers. Uh, she saw her dad walking, passing by with a, kind of a, a cloth, a veil covering his face and kind of bent down. And she was always surprised, and she, she yelled at him, you know, she was, Dad, Dad, you know, what, what are you doing? And she went outside, and her sister came after her, and no one was there. So she, she knew that that was kind of a mysterious vision, and uh, it's only years later that she, she understood what that was. Um, we will talk about it. So keep that in the back of your mind, this uh, little mysterious vision of Therese and her dad. So now our little Therese is eight years old. She finally goes to school with Benedictine sisters. Uh, as I said, she's quite advanced in studies, so she has around her in the same classroom, she has much older classmates, which of course begets jealousies. She suffers from it. Remember, she's extremely sensitive. So first there is some, you know, uh, legitimate reasons if she was bullied by, by other uh, girls in the class. You know, that's sufficient reasons to be to be upset. But also, we have to keep that in mind, she was not a saint yet. And she um, was extremely sensitive, and um, which is most of the time a sign of lack of humility. Um, Pauline, second drama. Pauline wants to enter the convent. And Pauline, who was considered truly as her new mother, made a mistake. She didn't tell Therese that she was going to join the convent. She broke the promise that she had made with Therese to let her know about everything and when she would enter the convent or, you know, do any, any grave changes in her life. Uh, so Therese is extremely affected by that. Pauline told her sisters, but not Therese, la petite Therese. She broke the promise. Absolute drama for Therese. And this is her second agony in a way. Very mysterious agony. She becomes um, extremely fragile, even more than before. She literally um, falls ill and has to stay in bed. She cannot eat anything. She has nauseas. She has headaches. She became, becomes extremely pale and skinny. And she would call that her strange illness. Even her was not sure what was that all about, you know. So that's one of the, the two elements, really, that uh, uh, started this, this disease in, in Therese. First, the fact that Pauline broke the promise. And second, the fact that um, one day, while visiting one of her uncles and playing with him, uh, the, un the uncle started talking, you know, about her mom, Zélie. 
and praise, praising her virtues or good qualities of the mother and so on. So bringing back to the mind of Therese these uh, sad memories of the presence of her mom. So that's why also truly affected uh, what tr truly affected the soul of Therese and her mind. And she studied this strange illness, strange disease. And that would last for quite a while. And extraordinary fact now, event in the life of Therese. The Vigil of Pentecost. So we're not too far from there. Vigil of Pentecost, 1883. She is now 10 years old. 10 years old. She cannot even recognize her own sister Marie when entering the room. She's still in bed, sick. She cannot even recognize her sister. Her three sisters are right there at the foot of the bed, praying, kneeling and praying to Our Lady. And at the back of the room, you can see this beautiful statue of Our Lady, uh, of Our Lady of uh, Victory, with this beautiful smile on her face. Uh, Our Lady of, of the, the smile. Um, and all of a sudden, according to Therese herself, Our Lady, she says, Our Lady seemed so beautiful, I had never seen anything like that before. So beautiful before. But, but most of all, her smile on her face. And that's what Therese will call this manifestation. We don't know. She said it herself. You know, She doesn't know if it was truly an apparition, if it was just her mind. Uh, of course, if we consider that Therese is a saint, uh, we, <laughs> let's not consider it. If we understand that she's a saint, we can certainly except the fact that it was truly your lady that appeared to her in this very extremely difficult time of her childhood. Uh, but even Therese remained very humble about it. You know, I don't know. I will just call it a manifestation of my mind, my imagination, our lady herself. I don't know, but that's what happened. And from now on, she's a totally different person. She's cured, healed from these, what we she would call her strange disease. Her first communion now. First communion, she would call it her first kiss. The first kiss with her beloved spouse. Jesus comes to kiss and embrace my soul. Beautiful words of St. Therese on the mystery of God's presence in the Holy Eucharist, her divine spouse. She would say, of course, very early on, if God infuses in us great desires, it is for us to realize them. And this great desire for her was to enter the convent, as we said. She received permission to enter the convent. We're going um, forward uh, now a little bit in history. She received permission to enter the convent by her own bishop right after Easter in the spring of 1888. The prioress there at the convent, going back inside these mysterious walls together, Mother Mary Marie de Gonzague was kind of a you know an older lady. Of course, she had been uh, prioress, I think, for about twenty-five years. Uh, very strong temperament, a very well-educated lady from a very uh, noble family. Um, she would see in at first in Therese kind of this young, you know, zealous uh, little soul uh, that needed to be kind of. Uh, humiliated a, bit, a little bit. She would, for instance, when crossing 
uh, Therese in the, the hallways, when walking in the hallways, uh, she would ask for what we would call the culpa, uh, la culpa. When we say mea culpa, my, my fault, this is my fault. Uh, that was a very common thing and s- might still be the, the case in more traditional uh, convents. The culp was really um, an act of uh, humility and maybe also a little bit of humiliation. You know, um, you had to kiss the ground to apologize right in front of the mother superior for having done something wrong. You know, if you make a little mistake, well, you had to stop, kneel down, kiss the floor, and apologize. That was a, a way. We understand that once we understand that the mother superior truly represents God's authority. And it's not just that one lady that I am kneeling in front of. No, it's truly who she represents. You know, God's authority over me, a guide, a mother that is doing everything she can to take me to heaven. And by the way, this is also something that we have at the seminary in Florence, Italy, our international seminary, when serving meals, for instance, if you, you know, drop uh, uh, silverware or you're neglectful with little things, you make too much noise when taking things away uh, while serving, during dinner or lunch, well, same thing, you know. Uh, you come and you kneel in front of the table where the superiors are sitting, and you wait there for a couple seconds just to, to practice what we call the culpa, you know. You apologize and you, you show to everyone that you uh, made a little mistake, and that uh, truly, uh, believe me, that helps you to uh, grow in, in humility uh, quickly. Uh, same when we get late, uh, we're, when we are late at the office, this is not even just at the seminary, even here in Chicago when we pray the office together, for instance, if we are late without uh, a valid uh, excuse, reason, we have to kneel in the middle of the choir just you know, for a couple seconds before going to our, our spot in the choir. So the practice of the culp, culpa, is a beautiful practice. But the Mother Superior... Uh, seemed quite more severe than what she should have been with Therese. Uh, humility, yes, but humility is through humiliation, which can be, uh, you know, uh, we can question sometimes some of her behavior. But uh, God chose this, you know, uh, um, this, um, this person, this instrument, to maybe help Therese to get to that degree of holiness uh, much quicker than uh, anybody else would. Her dad, going back to her family, her dad was got sick, seriously sick, after her being at the convent for only two months. So another big suffering for Therese, but also her other two sisters that were at the convent with her. He was sick of a brain disorder, you know, kind of... Um, dementia that affected the brain. Uh, so he disappeared one day. He disappeared for f- four days. He was gone. And the sisters were like, oh, where, where is he? They, they went to the convent, told the other uh, sisters present there, you know, pray, your dad is, is gone. We don't know where he is. It's been four days. And that's certainly not uh, something he would do. He was extremely attached to the family, a very holy, pious man. And all of a sudden, he's gone for four days. He was... F- found, you know, a couple, uh, I think, by the, the police, brought back home and sent to the asylum where he remained for three years. So extremely humiliating for the family and maybe for him too, if he was, you know, aware of what, what's going on in some ways. And that's what uh, Therese, that's at this time, I think she made the connection between the vision she had, uh, you know, at, 
at her home of her dad covering his face with this um, veil, she understood that his intelligence, you know, the eyes, his intelligence was going to be veiled in some ways. And that's the dementia that was um, being um, um, uh, going uh, at that time. Just a, a little fact also at the very end of his life, uh, it's beautiful, he went to the convent uh, to see his daughters there and uh, still with dementia, he was in a wheelchair brought up to the, the main uh, gate there, he was able to, to see his daughters and the only thing that he did uh, was pointing to heaven like this with his finger, simply to maybe in a, in a moment of conscience, you know, to tell them all, well, this is the last time I see you, and I will see you again only in heaven. Beautiful, holy men. She received the habit, of course, when joining the convent, and dressed with this beautiful wedding dress, as you can, uh, you know, probably from the pictures of the reception of the habit by our, our sisters, the sister adorers. Uh, we, we follow also this beautiful tradition of the the giving of oneself um, and dress with a wedding dress. This is now your espousal with the King of Kings. She pronounces her vows in September 8th, 1890. And that without, you know, suffering, without... Um, she, uh, sorry, she, she had extremely um, difficult and uh, lasting doubts right before receiving the habit. An interior voice was constantly trying to convince her that she had no vocation whatsoever and that she had to go back home. You know, that little voice of the devil or maybe of one one's own voice and conscience telling him or her, you know, do not do that. You are not meant for that. At that very last moment, when all our attention is needed to make this decisive step, of course, along with God's grace. After these doubts, she finally receives, um, pronounces her vows, and she chooses the name Saint Therese of the Child Jesus and Holy Faith, the Holy Face. Also, she made the connection between her dad, uh, you know, veiled like that with because of his dementia, but also connected with the passion of our Lord. That's also why, actually, she chose this um, second title in her name and the Holy Face, the face of Christ that was veiled not only in the tomb, but also when he was being spit at, you know, and uh, accused of everything and uh, maltreated by, by the, the people um, just before facing his passion. They put something around his eyes to cover his, his face. And, uh, you know, remember when they were... Um, 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 smashing his, his face um, before before his passion and trying to tell him, you know, guess who uh, just hit you? So a beautiful connection here between the passion of our Lord, the suffering of his of her dad, and the name that she chose. Unfortunately, one day she would uh, get extremely sick while cleaning the windows of the convent. You can imagine once again this big cloister, beautiful cloister with all these windows, uh, because it was quite of a, a recent uh, um, convent. So that lots of windows at that time they would like to they, they'd love to have like big windows um, to let a lot of light come in. So she was cleaning up the windows and got extremely sick. That's the beginning of her passion truly. On Holy Thursday, back in her room, 
she started to cough blood. What was her reaction? Well, she simply had a big smile and remained quiet. She didn't pay much attention to that blood that was covering this piece of cloth uh, that she used when coughing this handkerchief. A smile because she understood that the time was near when she would be united forever with her beloved uh, spouse, Christ our Lord. But that's also the beginning of what we call in spiritual life the night of the soul, the night of the senses, night of faith. From now on, she will have no consolations, bleak clouds truly uh, engulfing her soul. Against these many temptations, again, faith, you know, nights of the faith, against these many temptations, her spiritual director said, well, just write the creed, you know, write down the creed slowly and meditate on, on the creed. And you know what she did? She took a, a needle and uh, poked her finger, the tip of her finger, um, and she had these um, the Gospels that she would keep, like this tiny little book in her pocket right there, uh, right close to her heart, truly. She would take that uh, these Gospels, pick a finger, and take the blood coming out of her finger and write down every single letter of the creed. And we still have this book, you know, this little, uh, the four Gospels with these uh, whole creed written with the blood of La Petite Thérèse. So beautiful uh, little sacrifice, uh, you know, to to see that her faith, despite all these clouds, all these suffering, all these doubts, was stronger than ever because uh, reaffirmed not only uh, with her intelligence but with her own blood. And she would even engrave, we can see that in her room still, engrave on the wood of uh, one of the walls, uh, the, the wood panels, she engraved, Jesus is my unique love. In 1897, She's too sick to stay in her room upstairs on the second floor. She's taken down to the infirmary. The whole convent organizes itself to help her, and first among her, among them her sisters, of course. She confesses, If I had no faith, I would have taken my life away. Because the pain was so big, the suffering was so incredible, that she said, I would have taken my life away if, if, if I had no faith. She suffered from these uh, tuberculosis. You know, she couldn't breathe. She would say that, um, you know, she was uh, being uh, choked. You know, she couldn't breathe at all and thought she would die because she couldn't breathe. She suffered in an incredible way. And on September 30th, 1897, this is truly the, um, the um, most, um, the strongest time of her agony, the submit of her agony. The whole community is around her bed, deathbed. She suffers and she finally dies in a movement of love, completely abandoned in the hands of God. Even in her face, the sister would say, at the moment of her death, her face totally changed. She 
went from you know very uh, nervous, very uh, you could see that the pain, the suffering in her face, and all of a sudden when she passed away, almost a smile, you know, smiling face, a beautiful young face, this young face of a 24 years old saint. At the very moment of her death, the prioress uh, asked the sister to ring the bells. Beautiful. To ring the bells is a sign of, of joy because now our latest saint is in heaven with her beloved spouse. They even say that she seemed to have had an ecstasy at the moment of her death. The very last moment. A little quote again from Benedict the Sixteenth regarding these last uh, minutes. Therese died on the evening of September 30th, 1897, saying the simple words, My God, I love you. Looking at the crucifix, she held tightly in her hands. These last words of the saints are the key to her whole doctrine, to her interpretation of the gospel. The act of love expressed in her last breath was, as it were, the continuous breathing of her soul, the breathing of her heart. The simple words, Jesus, I love you, are at the heart of all her writings. The act of love for Jesus immersed her in the most holy trinity, and she wrote, Ah, you know, divine Jesus, I love you. The spirit of love inflames me with his fire. It is in loving you that I attract the Father. Dear friends, continues Pope Benedict, we too, with St. Therese of the Child Jesus, must be able to repeat to the Lord every day that we want to live a love, live of love for him and for others, to learn at the school of the saints, to love authentically and totally. Therese is one of the little the little ones of the gospel, who let themselves be led by God to the depth of his mystery. A guide for all, especially those who, in the people of God, carry out their ministry as theologians. With humility and charity, faith and hope, Therese continually entered the heart of sacred scripture, which contains the mystery of Christ. Of quote. Thank you, Pope Benedict. As a little parenthesis here, since we are concluding with the life itself of our saint, um, a beautiful connection between the shrine here in Chicago uh, and the shrine in Lisieux. As you know, the, where we are right now, these walls, where I'm giving the conference right now, these uh, was a Carmelite house for many decades in Chicago. The church itself that burned down that we are trying to uh, rebuild to... Uh, re, to make the National Shrine of the Institute of Christ the King. Um, this very church was the National Shrine of St. Therese of Lisieux for many decades. And this very house fundraised a lot to be able to help uh, the different uh, communities in France and especially the convent in Lisieux, you know, to restore the church, the, the convent, the house of the Zélie and um, Louis Martin, uh, because there were so many uh, pilgrimages, so many people visiting, so they, they needed you know some funds to keep that uh, in good shape and be able to welcome everybody. So this very house right now was um, extremely important in the process of canonization um, of, of St. Therese. And interesting enough, uh, the church itself, 
which is right behind me, uh, the church first big ceremony, the inauguration of the church in 1925, correspond, of course, to the canonization of Saint Therese. And uh, we can expect it's totally possible that in 2025, which would mark the 100th anniversary of the founding of this church, plus the canonization of Saint Therese, would correspond to maybe the reopening of our shrine here, our national shrine of the Institute. So let's pray, you know, and um, let's certainly trust in God's uh, divine providence. It's always interesting to see how God works uh, through dates as well. So now let's see a little bit more about the spirituality of St. Therese. A childlike spirituality, truly. Spiritually, uh, spirituality of, of a child uh, in the presence of his or her father. Childhood. What are the native qualities of a child in general? Well, he is well aware of his imperfection and faults. Uh, you know, he, he uh, easily asks for what he needs. He's not really responsible yet, you know. Um, but he expects everything from, from others. And you can see, of course, the connection with our spiritual childhood, expecting everything from God. We know that we are in need of him, that from ourselves we can't do much, like a little child. Most of all, after baptism, the baptism of the child, one can certainly admire the simplicity of that child and the understanding now of his frailty. Simplicity of the child that we have to follow in our spiritual life. Being quiet, straightforward, you know. Say what you think. Say what you need. Ask for what you need without affection. That's what the proper of a baby, you know, of a, of a toddler. He doesn't think much, but he asks for what he needs. Shows himself how he is truly. And that's the attitude we should have also in our spiritual life in regard to our relationship with God. He knows that he needs his parents. Being aware of his frailty will foster, of course, humility in that soul. You can see the analogy with the little child, this simplicity, this humility, trust, and confidence that St. Therese practiced her entire life, especially in the practice of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And he said, remember our Lord himself, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pope, Pius XII, you must not believe that youthful youthfulness is an obstacle on the road to perfection, even consummate perfection, consummate perfection, sanctity. Years earlier, his predecessor, predecessor, sorry, Pius X had exclaimed, talking about uh, early and frequent communion, there will be saints among the children. Childhood, now if we follow on that path, after childhood we have the time of uh, teenager, when we become a teenager. From simplicity to duplicity and pride, the child becomes more selfish and focuses more on human virtues such as courage or prudence, not making a clear distinction between 
virtuous prudence and false prudence to cover his sins and disorders. Life teaches him quickly, this little child, the cost of injustice and shows him a higher justice, a superior justice, and he now has to pick which road to take. If faithful to his prayers, he will hear in his heart, without me, you can do nothing. St. Therese teaches us where we can find these principal and essential virtues of God's little children. And following her footsteps and teaching, we shall find what we ought to be on a supernatural level, minus our imperfections. This spiritual child must be simple and upright, honest, excluding any lie, hypocrisy, not trying to be what he is not. St. Therese would always say, you know, live that adage truly, be who you are, 100%. The eye is the light of the whole body, so that if the eye is clear, the whole of thy body will be lit up. says the Book of Wisdom. I'm sorry, I have to hurry a little bit since we have Compline in about 25 minutes, which I hope you will watch. I will have to stop the streaming uh, to switch to Compline, so don't be surprised after the surprise after the conference. If I turn off the streaming, I will um, have right away after that the streaming for Compline starting at 8.55 central time this way of spiritual childhood I wish I could spend more time on that but um, at least I hope this gives you a foretaste of the spirituality of St. Therese and you will literally plunge into um, um, the, her spirituality through her book especially the uh, story of a soul this way of spiritual childhood unites perfectly together virtues that would seem at first opposite, strength and meekness. I talk about it very often at, at camps for the little ones. Strength and meekness, simplicity and prudence. According to our Lord himself, behold, I sent you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise, be prudent as serpents and innocent, simple as doves. So we have kind of these two aspects of the spiritual childhood like this. Teenager, you know, more uh, uh, strong prudence, uh, the virtues that he would practice more, and then the, the child itself, himself, you know, meek, uh, more simple. So, really, a spiritual infancy that we are invited to to follow with Saint Therese. To remain small, she would say, means to acknowledge one's own nothingness, to expect all from the good Lord as a small child expects all from his father, not to be worried about anything. It is to recognize our nothingness, to expect everything from God as a little child expects everything from his father. It is to be disquieted about nothing and not to be set on gaming or living, our living. To be little is not attributing to oneself the virtues that one practices. It is not to become discouraged over one's faults, for children fall often, but they are too little to hurt themselves very much. And this beautiful quote, apologizing, it's, it's in French, so I'll give the best translation I can. Even among poor people, as soon as the child remains very small, very t little child, we do not give 
we give him, sorry, everything that is necessary for him or for her. But as soon as he is now a grown-up child, um, his dad would tell him, I don't want to give you the food you need anymore. Do and work and get your food by yourself. You can take care of yourself now. But it is because I do not want to hear that from my dad that now I prefer to remain small. I do not want to grow. I feel incapable to earn my own life, to, to make money in a way for my own life in a spiritual sense. sense. I am incapable of earning eternal life by myself. So I remained this little child, having no other occupation, no other pleasure than to pick up the flowers of love and sacrifice and to offer them up to God for his good pleasure. Beautiful. So you remain a child expecting everything from from he alone who can uh, heal you, cure you, and take you to heaven like a, a, a father, you know, or a mother holding her child in her arms. To me, he has given his infinite mercy, and it is in this ineffable mirror that I contemplate his other divine attributes. Therein all appear to me radiant with love. His justice, even more perhaps than the rest, seems to me to be clothed with love. And the last lines of the story of a soul I have only to open the Holy Gospels. You can imagine this little book that she would carry here in her heart. I would open up the Gospels, and at once I breathe the perfume of Jesus' life, and then I know which way to run. And it is not to the first place, but to the least that I hasten. I feel that even had I on my conscience every crime one could commit, my heart broken with sorrow, I would throw myself into the arms of my Savior, Jesus, because I know that he loves the prodigal son who returns to him. So a theology, spirituality, truly based on trust, confidence, and love of God, which is extremely similar to the spirituality of St. Francis de Sales, as you know. I don't have time here to make a comparison between the two or better uh, um, the connection between the two spiritualities, but if you... Uh, read St. Therese and you listen to the other talks we gave on uh, St. Francis de Sales, you can see that it's truly transparent that she knew St. Francis de Sales and loved uh, his spirituality all based on, on trust, confidence in God and humility and love. And finally to conclude, and uh, that will be my my last words, and I thank you for uh, watching this conference tonight. I hope this uh, was a little bit helpful and helped you to, to understand better the life of the little Therese. She remains an uh, incredible saint for her time when we can feel so discouraged at the the sight of our imperfections, our sins. Uh, again, we see that holiness is for all. There is no other alternative. We have been created to be holy, to be become saints. And God gives us the means to do so, to become so. Up to us now to accept these, to embrace His love and to uh, one day be reunited all together in heaven. So here is a quote from the Bull of Canonization of St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. In our present needs, let us all invoke the patronage of St. Therese of the Child Jesus, that by her intercession, a shower of roses, that is, of the graces we require, may descend upon us, all of which we solemnly affirm out 
of the fullness of the apostolic authority, and if anyone contravene our decree, he shall incur the wrath of God and of St. Peter and St. Paul. St. Therese of the Child Jesus, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.